Dr. Joan Nadorf is an emergency room physician who, through clinical experience, has developed an expertise in managing the difficult patient. She's the author of Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients, a guide for physicians and healthcare professionals, which can be found on Amazon, and was featured in the Washington Post article on the topic, Some Doctors Don't Like Some Patients. While not being explicitly mindful, her approach to understanding and managing difficult situations employs concepts of intention, presence, and a non-judgmental approach to situations that we all experience in healthcare. Throughout this podcast, she will help you understand why patients may behave poorly and how our reactions and interactions may improve the experience. I hope you enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I've struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Operate with Zen. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Joan Nadorf. Dr. Nadorf is an emergency room physician by training. She is an author and lecturer. Her book is called Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients. You can find it on Amazon. And today, we're going to talk about some difficult patients and how we can more mindfully and appreciably uh, deal with those situations. So Dr. Nadorf, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, everybody. I'm really pleased to be here. My name is Joan Nadorf. I am an emergency physician. I live in Northern Virginia. I came to emergency medicine through my training. I started at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I uh, landed on emergency medicine rotation uh, one month and just fell in love with it. A lot of uh, similarities to surgery, I think, in that there's this intellectual challenge, but you get to do a lot and you get to do a lot of procedures and a lot of um, fun things with your hands. And we have a lot of good toys. Some people would say maybe we have the best toys. So I went on to do um, training in emergency medicine and really was the emphasis of our profession um, at Albert Einstein um, Medical Center in North Philadelphia. And after I did my training, I did an extra year of internal medicine. I did, I uh, came along with my husband, who's a gastroenterologist, to practice in Northern Virginia. I practiced at a community hospital called Alexandria Hospital, and now it's called a Nova Alexandria Hospital. And I also practiced at a, um, a small, uh, it was a small and then became a large army hospital near where I live called uh, Fort Belvoir Community Hospital. And I, uh, at that time, part of the time I was on um, a clinical faculty at George Washington University um, Emergency Medicine Residency Program. After, shortly after I started my, um, uh, tr- my career as an attending physician, uh, I found, I'm, I know, well, this is probably going to be your first question. <laughs> is that okay to just go? Yeah, just let's roll. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So I discovered that um, I trained so long and hard. I love emergency medicine. I loved it then, but I would leave a lot of shifts feeling miserable and I wanted to look into it. And one of the things that was troubling me was a small percentage of the interactions that I was having with patients. And I kind of got to call them for the sake of a grand rounds uh, lecture I was putting together, um, how to deal with difficult patients. Now, Um, I I do talk later about how we can kind of get away from calling them that, like they're basically difficult interactions with people. Um, And and some people are are a little bit more problematic and challenging than others. But I came up with that lecture. I presented it. I, um, my director loved it. We gave it again. I came up with some ideas that, and went through the literature at that time. And it was just um, kind of a new topic that, some, was was uh, 
you know, novel that perhaps some physicians did not like some of their patients and, and what that would possibly mean for them. And of course, this comes up a lot in the emergency department. We have some tough people. And um, what I learned from doing my research and coming up with a, a way to approach it was that I could change the way that I think about them. So I put that aside for a few years and did things like practice emergency medicine and have three children. Um, and then kind of towards the end of my clinical career, um, and that may be another podcast you'll have to address is what do, what do you do with all this wisdom and experience and knowledge that you have? And it, it's a little too hard for me to strap them up and go do a 12 hour shift when you reach a certain age but I still feel I wanted to, I felt like I wanted to share with people and get my message out there about this topic. I reached out to some of my attending physicians and friends who by this time are directors of programs and deans of medical school. And I started lecturing on this topic. And one of my friends suggested that I write a book. And um, once the pandemic started and I was at home a little bit more, I took on that project. I put it together um, I, I basically, all I had was a, a hard copy and the, and the PowerPoint that I had, was giving the lecture from, and I used that as, as the structure for the book and expanded on those ideas. Uh, it was published by the American Association for Physician Leadership, uh, and it came out in January of um, 2022. So, and, I, and I've been trying to spread the message, and I, at first I thought I might have to self-publish it, and I want to, a little bit like your story, Phil, I decided if it just helped one person have a better shift, uh, if it helped one nurse stay in clinical medicine, we need every single one of you to keep you know, doing it, to keep seeing patients. You know, we're, we're getting older. I'm getting older. I need you people at the bedside to be compassionate and empathetic and understand that, you know, sometimes the old lady who says that she was an ER doc one day. Um, is, you know, someone that, that I can have empathy for and, and treat uh, in a humanistic way. So that's how I kind of came to this point. And I really would like to share the message with uh, your listeners. Yeah. And thank you for being here. And I, I love the message. There's so many strong points there, but I want to get right into it. And very early on in the book, and I, I love your book, by the way, and uh, I'll just kind of give a quick plug once again, changing how we think about difficult patients. And one of the things I really like is the objective nature in the beginning, the way you really break things down to help people understand the the facts about this. They're the kinds of patients you're going to see, how they may interact, why they interact that way, and how you respond to them. And I think having those objective criteria and understanding can really help people process and move forward in, in a positive direction. So um, we'll get through all of that, but I just wanted to make that plug. So one of the first things that struck me is uh, that only about 15% of our patients are classified as so-called difficult patients. And, and I love how you said that difficult interactions with people, not difficult patients, but 15% of people are classified this way. And that 15%, whether you're in the ER, a surgeon, clinic, operating room, wherever it is, can ruin your day or your week. And it doesn't take a lot for, for that to happen. Absolutely. Um, you know, when, when you really sit down and think about it, which is probably one of the exercises we should all do is, is to review all the great things that happened, all the good things that happened, all the handshakes and thank yous that we got. Uh, the, what tends to stand out are the one or two or three, you know, in, in, a, in a shift in an emergency department, it might be four or five because of that percentage. Um, but most of our patient interactions are mutually rewarding. They're successful. We feel good about them. We know that we've helped someone. Someone else is better off for having seen us that day. And, um, you know, that is part of most of us will say this is probably why we chose this profession. But yet, when things go poorly, someone is not happy with, with how we presented it or what we've told them. They wanted something different, uh, just perhaps not even the type of person that's easy to interact with. Um, we, re we tend to remember those because our, our brains fix on the negative, of course. It's part of what we do. It's part of evolutionarily speaking. It's how we survived. 
Um, and we, we tend to fixate on, on the negative, the people who did not take our advice, who didn't show up for their appointments, who um, did not you know, treat their wound properly or come back uh, to have their sutures removed when they should have. So uh, we, we need a little um, refocus of our thinking on the, on the good parts, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And and just for the listeners, that's called a negativity bias. And it is 100% ingrained in us. It's what kept us safe, right? We remember the bad things so that we don't do them again. And I think those cues and, and expressing gratitude are hugely important. I mean, I remember doing this uh, the other day with my kids. I mean, everybody came in from the house and everybody was complaining. My day was terrible because of this. And my day was terrible because of that. And I said, stop, stop eating dinner. Stop eating Everybody go around the table and let's talk about one good thing that we're grateful for today. And it changed the whole tone of dinner. And we had a much better dinner afterwards. And the other example I'll give for people following along on YouTube, that those shelves behind me here, you and I were just talking about this before we hit the record button. Not everything on there, but a lot of the a lot of the things on that shelf are gifts from patients or colleagues, inspirational moments that brought a lot of gratitude. And when you're having a rough day, it helps to be able to turn around and look at the positives that have come out of our interactions. Because not every interaction is going to be perfect in medicine, but there is so much good we do and, and we can get so much joy out of it if we can get off the focus on negativity. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Of course, one of the areas of negativity that that just kind of infests everybody, I talk about it in the book quite a bit, is how we're, we're basically trained that way. We're trained by, uh, you know, we, we come out of school with this um, very high ideals. You know, we wrote these beautiful essays to get in or to match at our residency programs. And then we get on uh, the wards and the floors and the office and the clinics that we're, we're attending uh, as residents. And we find that uh, everybody hates the patients, that people think they're, they're really uh, obnoxious. And Mrs. Jones in room eight is terrible and nobody wants to go in and see her. Um, and this is a, a kind of terrible group think that we all uh, fall into. And I think if we stop and listen to it and become more aware of it, we can, you know, stop in that, in that moment. I will talk about it later, the think, feel, act cycle. We can actually change how we're thinking about the people. And I think the very negative bias that we have is one thing we can work on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you call this the hidden curriculum. It's kind of what we're exposed to inadvertently. And I mean, listen, the house of God and the term gomers is one of the things. I mean, that's really a pejorative statement, right? And if you think about what that means and um, it's not how we should view our patients, right? Those people probably uh, need the most help because they're the most vulnerable and the the most um, in need and they deserve our kindness more than anyone else. Uh, and I think it makes us, you know, really better physicians when we can address all of those people. But you're right; the first part is awareness. You, we can't fix the problem unless we are aware of it. So we have to be aware that, yeah, we do do that. There, there is a tendency to kind of bin people into the good and the bad and the, you know, non-compliant, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, P- getting those labels, especially the, labeling someone non-compliant, even labeling someone by their diagnosis, which we uh, absolutely have a tendency to do. I mean. Who has the time to learn everyone's name in the emergency department or whatever clinic you happen to be working at? We call it, well, there's that sickler in room 10, and there's that kidney stone in, in, in room 15. And, you know, someday those people are going to come in with a different diagnosis. And because of that confirmation bias, and we don't go looking, we're going to miss it <laughs> because we think, oh, no, Mr. Smith is coming in with his kidney stone again. Um, so it's a, a challenge and I think it's one of, we have to become aware of it or, or we can never change it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the small benefits of electronic medical record is it allows us to generate these cues that are not related to diagnosis. So I put it right in my dictation, you know, uh, retired teacher, you know, airline pilot for Delta, whatever it may be. Um, that way the patient knows I was actually listening to them, but it's also, I know it's in the record and it'll help me cue to who that person is as a person, but there's the sticky notes and Epic. And there's a variety of things you can use to help once again, humanize patients. When you find yourself once again, yep, there's the kidney cancer, you know, I'm doing two kidney tumors tomorrow and a bladder cancer, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's Mr. Jones and Mrs. Smith, and these are real people with real stories. And, uh, you're right. We, we do sometimes a poor job of, of acknowledging that. 
if you're uh, lucky enough to, to be like I was, which is that I practiced in the community in which I live. And um, I would, you know, run into patients at the supermarket and at restaurants. And, um, you know, you find out that, you know, they are totally different. They're total, there are people with full, complete lives, and we are seeing them on one of their worst days. Um, they're either ill uh, or, or they've had some sort of sudden unexpected injury. Um, like you mentioned, I do talk about a lot of the kind of typical responses to illness and injury that people have. And we are a little bit immune to that because we see this sort of thing every day. They have no idea what the gravity of a situation might be. Um, usually they're overblowing that. They, they think that some small ache or pain is, means the absolute worst. And um, we don't always address those issues with them. And uh, that's when people um, find, uh, be become difficult in a way because we're not meeting their expectations and uh, not addressing or becoming aware of some of their fears. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's talk about some, you know, what it means to be a difficult patient or, or that terminology and some of the types of difficult patients, and then we can get into the why and how we improve it. But let's start with who, who is a difficult patient? What is that person like? Well, the way I like to answer that question, and, and that's frequently the first question I get asked, it, it's an extremely subjective thing, which is a definition, which is the point of the whole exercise. It's an entirely made up definition, and we can redefine it if we choose to. But I think it's helpful to define what makes a good patient, because uh, if we think about the type of patient that we imagine that we that we would like to see 12 times a day in our office hours or in our emergency department is someone who is mature and responsible, follows instructions, is respectful, um, understands uh, our language and how we're speaking, gets right to the point, and um, also is planning, you know, goes along with our plan, follows instructions. So these are what we would like in our, in our good patients. If you probably ask most physicians, these are the qualities that we view in ourselves. So in a lot of ways, we're looking for people who have the same sort of shared values that we do. Now, I think this comes into play later when we view some people and their behaviors as difficult because some of them do not speak the same language we do through no fault of their own. Most of us are speaking English. Some of us are lucky enough to be bilingual or trilingual, and that helps. But it's hard to get through to people. It's hard to understand what their issues are. And uh, a lot of us view those people as difficult patients. And just for that reason, um, there may be some sort of cross-cultural issues um, that we don't understand about how other people are dressed or other people are... Um, tattooed or pierced or stuff like that, or how they appear in some sort of um, non-gender binary uh, type of fashion that we don't understand or pe perhaps even disapprove of. So that in, in some people's mind makes them a difficult patient to interact with. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and two things jump out to me right away is First, we set incredibly high standards for our patients of who they should be, right? Absolutely. And, and I found that uh, reassuring kind of reading the book and now hearing you say it is, listen, recognizing that we're setting high standards makes it okay for not everybody to meet them, I think is the, the first part of that. Give them a little bit of grace. They're not physicians. They're not another surgeon or ER doc. They don't understand what's going on to them at sometimes even the simplest level. And I think the other thing that came to mind is, you know, yeah, we, we've all had the quote unquote difficult patient because they were a jerk or acting in, in that behavior. But yeah, I, I even think about it and, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I just think it's true, right? You know, somebody who comes in with a translator or interpreter, it, that's a more challenging interaction. And I, what I think I've gotten better at the years is saying, is priming yourself saying, this is going to be a challenging interaction this is not their fault. And this is why I came into medicine. I got in here to help people who need help, no matter where they're from, what they speak, you know, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer. It's going to take more, 10 more minutes out of my day, 
but it's not about me. It's about them. And um, that's helped me reframe these things over the years. And yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say, yeah, that I still think that way. I do um, occasionally. And well, I think for physicians like yourself in a, in a, you know, you may have a certain amount of time allotted for a certain on your schedule, this makes it take longer. And um, so that already puts you behind in your schedule or, or, or where you might have to be later. So it, I think it does become an issue. And I think one of the, one of the examples I used in the book, and of course I use this in the book because I had this issue myself was I was, I found it difficult to, to see infants and children, which are probably like 20, 25% of what you see in the emergency department. I wasn't used to interacting with them. Um, and they come in and you cannot, uh, you know, the parents have to speak with them. They can't say themselves, oh, my left ear is hurting me. They just act cranky or they're crying. And um, most people don't think of that. We don't think of them as a difficult patient because they're not acting in a certain obstructionist way on purpose. But it is difficult for some people who really want things kind of, um, you know, when you want to be an orthopedic surgeon, you, you probably like that people come in and say, my knee hurts. It helps to, to get right to the issue. But for, you know, in a child, you don't always know and you have to look and you have to look in an organized way. And once you kind of get that, what I learned, which helped me view them as not difficult later, is that children cannot fake it. When they feel badly, um, they can't put a smile on and act fine. And then, and then the inverse of that, when they feel better, they're happy that you walk in and you get the best smiles. And for, in terms of uh, gratitude and, and looking for something at the end of a, of a difficult visit, the smile that you get at the end is worth it all. And I actually came to like seeing kids over the course of my career. Yeah. I mean, you're going to look for different interactions from different people and you're going to look for different outcomes. And I think, you know, you can even get into the the micro of that where, you know, for me in, in my career with urologic cancer patients, you look for a different outcome from a prostate cancer patient than you may from a kidney cancer patient than you may from a testicular cancer patient. They're different people, different disease states, and the outcomes are different. And um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way of thinking. You're, you're, I love people who make you think differently, Joan, and you make me think differently. So I really, I really appreciate that. Um, one of the th things I found incredibly helpful in the book in understanding why someone may be difficult is that people show up and generally these behaviors come from fears. And so talk to us a little bit about kind of fear and how that can influence our interactions and our outcomes. Absolutely. Most of our patients have no idea why they're having certain symptoms. And we come in and if some of them, of course, look it up online. Um, uh, if you've ever done something like that, you'll see that the, the first thing they list or in, in just about every symptom is could be cancer um, and could be a tumor or could be um, a vascular problem. So they're thinking the worst probably fill some of your patients, they already are grappling with that really troubling diagnosis. And, uh, but in the emergency department and other um, uh, medical office settings, surgical office settings, there is some problem that they're afraid of how it might affect them in the future. Will they be able to walk? Will they be able to, um, you know, urinate normally, have control of their body functions? Uh, will they be able to uh, continue uh, to be, you know, a wife, a husband, mother, will they be able to continue in those roles of caregivers if they have pets or children or parents that they're taking care of? Uh, they are not sure if they're going to die or not. So there are a lot of fears that our patients have, and we need to address them. And one of the only reasons to, one of the only ways to find out is to actually just point blank ask them, you know, have I covered everything? Um, is there something else that you are afraid of? Um, <clears throat> you will come, you know, you, I'm sure you, you have some stories, but I have some very interesting, funny stories about patients coming up with stuff that I didn't even dream of because it would never occur to me to, to have the, these same thoughts that the patients are having. Um, and I saw a, um, I don't know if it, you'll see if you can 
you can keep this in there. I had a patient who had a child, a little bit of scalding water splashed over the side of a bowl. I guess the child was not even wearing a diaper. It was a little toddler, got really tiny little um, burn on the near the tip of his penis. It was like smaller than what a pencil eraser spot there. And I was, you know, we gave him something for pain. We, you know, gave the right ointments. We reassured about to leave. I asked the parents, have I covered anything? You have any other questions? And the father asked me, will he be able to be a father? This is like an 18 month old. And I'm like, and I had to keep from laughing. Uh, but I realized this was, you know, what he was thinking of. And it was a very real fear for him. And I like, yes, of course, have no effect. So um, you have to ask. So you and um, find out uh, what the patient's fears are, because they have all their experience from people in their family, people at their workplaces, someone at the barbershop, uh, that something crazy happened to, and they want to make sure that it that it's not going to happen to them. The only way to figure it out is to ask them and to try and cover as much as you can. Um, I would have a certain discussion I'd have with the patients of all the things that I thought they did not have. And that would set some fears aside in their mind um, that I do not think you have cancer right now. I do not think you're having a serious heart problem right now. And that's not to say that they can't have something in the future. So that approach also helps um, to allay their fears. Yeah. yeah. I love having these mindful conversations because sometimes they actually affirm that some of the good things I do. So uh, you've just affirmed one of the, the good behaviors I was doing and, and not realizing, you know, when, especially when talking with cancer patients and about difficult surgeries, I do put things in the context of fear and say, what scares you more? Does, you know, for instance, if you've, um, I'll give an example in, in part of my expertise is in small renal masses. And most of those masses are cancers, but most of those cancers aren't dangerous. So sometimes you'll have a patient and you'll talk to them, what scares you more, cancer or surgery? And sometimes that's a way to kind of address those fears because those are two common fears, right? Dying of cancer or, you know, as you talk about in the book, kind of fear of loss of organ or injury to organ or, or limb, whatever it may be. You've also challenged me to think, okay, these are the common fears I'm thinking of or that are in the literature or that are expressed by most patients, but we really should be asking, is there anything else that has you upset or you're worried about here? And I think that's a really important and poignant part that I'm going to take moving forward into my clinic this week, uh, to be honest with you. That's um, that, that's a good point. And, and I think that you know a lot of people have reached out to me since I've put the book out there. Um, in, in July of last summer, I had a piece that actually appeared in the Washington Post that kind of uh, introduced some of these ideas to the public so that they would understand that, you know, doctors and nurses are humans who sometimes have these emotions about their patients, all things being equal, it's better for them to have good emotions about you. But, you know, people come as they are, that's for sure. And a lot of people came to me um, talking about some of their fears and some of their kind of medical PTSD type of um, issues, and which I did do mention about pe people's previous um, experiences in the medical system and how that may have traumatized them. But some people don't even know that about themselves. They don't know why they freak out every time someone comes near them with a needle. Um, and... I think if they do know, it's really helpful to talk with their staff. People say like, I might act a little bit nuts here when you come at me with a needle, but it's because this happened to me when I was young. But sometimes people don't even know that. So asking them about it and kind of validating it for them um, goes a long way to, you know, maybe not, not erasing it totally, but tamping it down. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. Um, it's a good segue into kind of how these negative feelings and these difficult interactions can lead to bad behaviors on our part. And I, I'd love to hear your kind of insights into this because it can be a vicious cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would see this so frequently um, among myself and my colleagues because I think all of us can recall, I think at some time, Sometime where we lost our temper, lost frustration with someone who um, was presenting their point of view, which they 
are absolutely entitled to have. And it, and it went against ours. It disagreed with ours. And we wanted to make ourselves heard. Now, sometimes I do talk about mirroring of emotions. If the patients are coming at us, you know, hot and fast and angry, it's so easy to get our back up. I mean, it is, again, evolutionarily, um, we're, we're there to kind of defend ourselves and we can get our back up against the wall and we can respond with anger. Um, I, I've seen people in my department respond with violence, sadly. And um, we're, you know, we're proud kind of um, perfectionistic type of people. Uh, we think that our way is the right way. And we, when we're challenged, uh, we tend to think, you know, probably some thought in our brain is like, how dare you? I'm the one who went to medical school and four years of residency and three years of fellowship. And you think because you saw this on WebMD yesterday, that that's the way to go but uh, they get a chance to express their opinions and we have to press pause in that cycle uh, where we have this thought they shouldn't be doing that and, and get angry or get uh, or, or start yelling, raising our voices, arguing with them. Um, yeah, we get into some bad behavior and it even gets to the point in some people, I also have seen this many times in my department where um, we want to punish the patients. We don't want to give them the amount of um, dilaudid or fentanyl that they're asking for because we feel like we're being manipulated. Um, we don't want to give them um, a work excuse or a work note because we feel that they're just making something up. They made up, possibly made up the whole um, encounter. Um, and, or we, we don't like that they're not taking our advice so we don't want to admit them. We discharge them prematurely. Um, this sort of thing. And so we can go down a really, uh, you know, when we, if we really take, uh, become aware of it and step back and look at our own behavior, this is not why we went into medicine or surgery. We want to kind of take the high ground and do a little better. Um, again, the first way to improve the way we're acting is to become aware of our thoughts and our um, emotions and our actions behind it. Yeah. And, you know, I will say, there are lots of ways to become more emotionally aware of yourself. For me, a mindfulness-based practice really helped me do that. You know, there's something called a body scan, which can is often attributed to kind of physical sensation. You can kind of scan the physical sensations in your body, but can also help you really cue into emotions. And that really helped me. So help me understand, all right, I'm getting worked up in this situation, whether it's with a patient, a nurse, another physician, whoever it is, this is why I'm getting worked up. And then it allows you to address it in a much more appropriate fashion than just, as you said, either mirroring the emotion or, you know, giving into kind of our, our first uh, interaction, which is not always the best. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's important to understand that my approach and what I'm talking about is not to kind of erase all negative reactions. Sometimes we want to have negative reactions or those reactions are appropriate. If we're very sad about a terrible diagnosis we've just made in somebody or a child or, or some injury that, that looks terrible and we feel bad about that, or we're, um, we, we're, we're grieving also um, with our patients and we, we may need to take the time um, a body scan is helpful to see how it feels in your body. Um, you know, every once in a while, I would step out into the back um, room of our emergency department, back where the the the, the, um, the staff lounge was. Back in the day, people would go out there and smoke, but it's a good place to go out and have a little cry if you needed to, because that helped you kind of release some of those emotions. Usually, you don't get too much time to process. You got to keep going on with your shift as when something really terrible has gone on. Um, but I'm not saying to um, kind of erase all of that. We want that. We want you to be a feeling um, empathetic um, physician, surgeon who feels with along with your patients. Um, so some of that is absolutely appropriate and um, kind of helpful to keep our, our practice on track. Yeah. And actually I would, I would say the op, uh, kind of the opposite is that you want to engage those emotions. That's how you get over them. I mean, listen, you may not want to engage it at that moment in the ER and your shift, but at some point you're going to have to address it. So the sooner you address it, the better. 
And just, uh, you know, another quick physiology plug is, listen, the physiology of emotion lasts 90 seconds. Catecholamines, cortisol, all of that washes out of our bloodstream in, in 90 seconds. So ride the wave for 90 seconds, embrace the emotion, recognize what it did to you both physically and emotionally, and you'll become, you, you'll better be able to respond to the situation you're in. I think some of those emotions um, really hit you more as you grow on. I know some of your listens, listeners are very young and they haven't had all the experiences that you have as you're growing older. Maybe some of them, you know, don't have children. And so when you become a parent, I thought, you know, I wrote an essay on my blog about the, how that made me a better physician because I could understand what the parents were thinking. And I could understand how upset people were at, at various, when, when I thought they were acting like jerks, they, this is what they really believed. Uh, they were advocating for their children and the, trying to make things better. So I feel that, you know, as we go on and, and get these experiences and try to um, talk a little bit later about how we try to change our uh, thoughts about some of our patients um, to view them perhaps as family members or the way a, a family member, uh, we would react to it, uh, helps our, our thoughts about the patients to ground them and not to kind of fixate on some of the negative thoughts. Yeah. And I love how in the book, you, you classified some of the challenging patients and yeah, once again, it's going back to classification, but the classification is to help us understand who they are and how we can better help them. So you have the clinger and the demander, the rejector, the denier, and these are helpful classifications rather than just the kidney stone in Bay 14, right? These help us understand why somebody may be acting a certain way and Getting to your point, I think a nice segue into how to in, in, how to better behave, which is your think, feel, act model. Absolutely, I think that so. Those, those four uh, categories are from a classic article by um, psychiatrist James Grove um, in the late seventies, and this was one of the first times that people were kind of categorized this way. They're stereotypes, but they're definitely. Um, types that all of us see at one time or another, uh, like the, what we call the entitled demander. We know that someone comes in feeling very entitled. Um, they're a big, important person. They might be on the hospital board or a local celebrity or something and think they should have special treatment. And a lot of that comes from insecurity. And uh, those people need the physician, the surgeon much more so, and becoming aware of these different types helps to, uh, for us to understand them and to, you know, we take a moment before we react or overreact and say, ah, yes, uh, this is a person acting in this way. Um, we've seen this, we know this, um, they're kind of insecure, um, they're a little bit needy and I'm going to, instead of backing away and being angry at that, I'm gonna lean in a little bit more and find out what it's all about. And it definitely is a challenge. Um, Good for, so those, yeah, for those following along on YouTube or the visual version, uh, Dr. Nadorf is sharing the think, feel, act cycle visually as we kind of talk through it. Okay, so there is a concept kind of originated in the cognitive behavioral therapy world and what it does is help us become aware, it's an awareness tool, that the things, uh, circumstances, situations that happen in the world um, are what cause, are, are, are neutral, and then um, how we interact with them. So we call it the think, feel, act cycle. In terms of patient, uh, on, on the screen, I have it uh, in terms of a patient in the emergency department, but it kind of goes for every a patient who arrives in any sort of clinical situation, a patient arrives with a problem. They were in a car accident. They have an illness. They have some sort of symptom. That is the circumstances. circumstance. It's beyond our control. And uh, it is by its very nature, neutral. Um, and when I say neutral, I mean that it, in, until a clinician, a doctor, a nurse, a surgeon has a thought about it, it is absolutely neutral. And not everybody has the same ideas about something. In the book, I talk about how different people react to um, a, a crying child uh, differently when that person comes into the emergency department. 
So that is we call that that is the, the the circumstance, and then we have a thought about it. A person has a thought about person. A thought is perhaps, oh, that poor baby. Another thought might be, his parents shouldn't have brought him here. Uh, another thought might be, I know how to help that fellow. And depending on what the thought is, we have certain feelings or emotion. If we uh, have a positive thought, we can feel compassion. If we think they shouldn't have feel they shouldn't have brought the person here or they came to the wrong place, we might feel annoyed at them or we might feel um, uh, uh, some other negative feeling. We might feel angry. So depending on what we feel, if we feel um, compassion and curiosity, which are positive emotions, uh, or we just feel our sense of obligation, We'll do our labs and imaging. Those are the actions. If they need procedures, we do them. We give them medications. And depending on that, uh, the next step in the cycle is uh, our result. Uh, either a patient will feel better or a patient um, will not feel better and perhaps needs to be admitted and we'll make some sort of disposition on the patient. So what's important here is at that stage where um, we notice that we're feeling bad or we have some sort of negative feeling, we've labeled somebody as difficult, we can pause and decide how we wanna act. Um, we, we wanna try not to act, react in anger or punish anyone. We wanna try to do what's best for them. We wanna be more curious as to why things happen this way. And so what we can do, um, it, it, what the book is basically about is how we can kind of nudge ourselves towards better feelings, excuse me, towards better thoughts, because those cause the feelings and emotions. So we can, with practice, kind of mindfulness um, issues, say, how can I think about this in a different way? And I'll go over some of the questions a little bit later that we can use to get ourselves thinking in a different way. Yeah, I'd love to get into those questions, but just, I mean, this is this is a very mindful approach to patient interactions, and you talk about this in the book as well. I mean, the key components of mindfulness are intention, presence, and being non-judgmental. And so, what you're talking about here is kind of intentionally thinking about the interaction, understanding the feelings it's bringing up, and trying to act in a non-judgmental way, and to better be present and in the moment to deliver the best medical care we can with the patient. So I think this is an incredibly powerful process. Yeah, it really is. And I think that such a key part, and, and I heard one of your presentations about the judgmental issue. I think that goes a long way to, to our thoughts uh, because we, we come at our patients with extremely judgmental thoughts. Um, they should have taken better care of their wound. They should have gone to their follow-up um, appointment. Um, they're non-compliant. All those words that we use, those are judgments. And we can, um, we can work on those. And we, we do, you know, by our nature, by the very nature of our business, we are comparing people to an ideal. We're comparing, you know, what a what a, a patient's abdominal exam to an ideal and, and then and looking at something that has pathology. So we, I like to say we, you should evaluate and not judge. Um, and it takes a while to get there because uh, everyone in the department, everyone on who, who's making rounds with you um, are practicing a lot of judgment. Yeah, they certainly are. They certainly, certainly are. So let's talk about some of the tangible or, or things we can do when in those moments, how can we better act or interact with, I'm going to not say difficult patients, I'm going to say in these difficult interactions with people, how can we, you know, be better? Well, becoming, I, I think the answer to that is to be first become aware, uh, to ask ourselves certain questions. I think one of the most useful questions we can ask possibly one of the hardest for the surgeons is, um, could I be wrong about that? Um, we have some sort of plan. Uh, we have, say we wanna, uh, for emergency physicians, very frequently we want to admit a patient for their problem. And they come back at us that they can't, or they don't wanna be, or they wanna go home and take care of their cat first and come back tomorrow. And 
they're very legitimate reasons that patients have. Even their, their pets, sometimes they're taking care of family members or people who are um, uh, disabled. And we have to really um, question ourselves. Could, could I be wrong about that? Could there be another way? Maybe that's not quite as good, but it's also good because our object is to alleviate, alleviate their suffering, help them and find some solution that, that helps them, even though it's not what we think is right. But we get kind of ingrained in this all or nothing thinking. Um, it's my way. I did all that training. I know what's best. This is what should happen. And we have to break at that moment of those thoughts, try and get away from them and say, huh, I could be wrong about that. There could be other answers. There are definitely other answers. That's a rhetorical question. Of course, there are more than two answers, my way or the highway. There is probably two dozen, um, maybe suboptimal, but still better than nothing. And we have to find them. We have to find common ground with our patients who don't want to take certain medications, who, who probably cannot show up or do not have transportation um, to, to follow-up appointments, and we have to kind of find out what they are, lean in, ask why. Why don't you want to do this? Um, and there may be some answers that we don't even anticipate. And there may be some services that we can access for patients, but we can unless we don't know about them. We can possibly get them transportation or taxi vouchers to, to get to certain places, um, but we can unless we don't know about them. They may not have access to medications uh, or, or, or prescription plan. I would say a whole, whole homeless, undomiciled population, whatever plan we give them, let's just assume right off the bat, they can't adhere to it. Um, and thinking that they can is, is basically foolish on our part. Yeah, great, 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 great point. And when you think about the objective reasons that complications or issues may happen, one of the leading ones is limiting beliefs, right? We, we, we have an N of one experience, or we believe, you know, based on our knowledge and our experience that things should happen. And we're not willing to open our mind to that. And you're right. You see it a lot in surgery. We see it a lot with surgeons. And so one of the things we talk about now and trying to improve that is approaching things with a curious mind or a beginner's mind, right? Opening your mind. We're taught as surgeons specifically, and you can contrast this with the ER training. You know, we're, we're, taught to be convergent thinkers. What's the problem? What's the solution? How can we fix that in an operating room? So for surgeons a lot, the challenge is going the other way, trying to think divergently what else could be going on here. And when it comes to patient care, to, to your point, the, what it made me think of was, yeah, the New England Journal may say that this is the best medication or the best surgery for this patient in this condition, but it's not written about Mrs. Jones sitting right there across from you. She may have other reasons that that is not the best for her. And we have to be willing to kind of put down the New England Journal or whatever our textbook says and think about the person in front of us. Yeah, it's absolutely true. We have to you know, lean in. I think for the vast majority of us, especially with people who are, um, who, who we kind of, we, we find difficult, our tendency is to go in the other direction because if, if we can't, and I'm, I'm sure every single one of us has some situation where we can't even tolerate going to someone's room. It's such a horrible experience, but, you know, parenthetically or paradoxically, those are the people who need us the most. And we need to find out wh why they're acting that way. Now it may be some sort of underlying undertreated psychiatric illness, but it could be just that they have other needs. Um, and I think one of the other questions, in addition to, um, you know, could I be wrong about this, is what else is true here? What else is true about this person? That crotchety lady down at the end of the hallway was somebody's, um, was a very well-respected and a well-loved third grade teacher. Um, she has children and grandchildren, and uh, we need to be mindful of that. And that the family members don't see her as that crotchety lady who we can barely stand to go into her room. They're like, how come no one's helping my mother? Um, and we have to be mindful of that, kind of give them a pass the way we, we would give our own mother a pass for being crotchety sometimes. 
and uh, go back in there and find out what's wrong and do our best. And at least we know if it still doesn't, sometimes it still doesn't work out, of course, and things uh, don't end as well as, as we could, but at least we're kind of confident that we did our best to, to try everything at our disposal. I agree with you completely. Well, Joan, we've talked about some amazing things. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to take this. I have a couple of other questions that I want to go in some different directions, but I'll give you the opportunity to, you know, are there things we need to cover? What else do we need to talk about uh, before we sign off today? Well, in, in a slightly different direction uh, from the book, but not exactly, is I, I think there's been some uh, breakdown in, in relations between the consulting services and the emergency department. I understand that you probably haven't had an emergency physician on your, on your, on your program. And although everyone has done some uh, rotations through an emergency department, you know, you, your, your brain is different at this point. You have a different training. And although there's a lot of overlap with your colleagues in the emergency department, there a lot of them are in a very stressed, um, overworked, overtaxed state right now. They barely have uh, space in, in a room in, in the back of the emergency department to see their patients. So for if they're consulted on some problem where you, you think as a consultant, they could take care of this themselves, they probably can't. Um, I think if they could, they would. Um, I think, you know, we're pretty proud branch too. We don't like asking for help if we don't have to, but uh, we don't have the same equipment. We don't have an anesthesiologist to put someone to sleep for us. We don't have a nurse to monitor some sedation. Um, of course we have nurses, but they're got like four or five patients of their own and we can't control the flow of people still coming into the emergency department through triage or through the ambulance bay. So I, I'd like to see people reach out, be more collegial, go have a cup of coffee um, with their colleagues in the emergency department and uh, try to be a little bit more understanding. Yeah, I think it's a huge point to just say, listen, we're better through diversity and our hospitals and our hospital systems don't work if we don't have all kinds of physicians and nurses and team members. And yeah, you may not have liked your rotation in the emergency room, um, but that doesn't mean that the emergency room is any less of a place or any less of physicians than than you are. And it's incredibly important, I think. Uh, I've learned through the years, and, and in all honesty, haven't always been the, the kindest to uh, emergency room physicians, spe specifically when I was training. Um, but And I'm not making excuses. That was the culture then. And I look back at a lot of that and um, actually I'm embarrassed about a lot of those behaviors. And and in one way, in one way, very much wish I did not behave that way, but I also learned tremendously from acting like a jerk, to be honest with you, and how that made me feel. And it didn't make the situation better. It only made things worse. And so I would plug people with that to say, listen, those behaviors are not uh, not beneficial for anyone involved. And I'd also say, you know, working we're working very closely with our emergency room physicians here at, at our hospital in Philadelphia. And one of the initiatives we're working on is just picking up the phone more often and having conversations, right? Instead of creating initiatives to direct admit or get this patient out of the ER and dump them on medicine or bring them to surgery or who's going to fight over the broken leg and the diabetic patient is an ortho or medicine, just pick up the phone and have a conversation because we're all on call. We're all tasked with taking care of these patients. And instead of doing it through handoffs and or residents or trainees or whoever, just pick up the phone and have a conversation. And guess what? It's a lot easier to talk to Joan and come up with a reasonable solution than it is to go back and forth through pages and texts and emails. And so that's one of the initiatives we've been working on. And, and I hope it, uh, I hope it works for us and I hope it works for other people too. Well, it's, so important. And I can honestly say that um, a few um, mistakes that I made along the way were mitigated by the fact that the, those people who wanted to turn around and complain about me were my friends. So they didn't. Or they just said it to me personally instead of, you know, going running and telling the principal. Um, that, that's just tongue in cheek. Um, but uh, it, it's hard to be mad at someone who you like. And, you know, I would, 
be very collegial with them. Um, I think it also helped my husband also practice in the same community and knew some of those people on um, kind of a consulting basis. Um, There's been a whole change in the way um, that physicians interact uh, that I've seen over the years, gone from certain consultants who wanted to be nice to people like in the emergency department and primary care providers because they wanted consults from those people. Now, of course, house staff just views the emergency department physicians as, you know, the scapegoat who, who are making their lives miserable. But, um, you know, we're doing our jobs. Um, part of our jobs are getting people out of the emergency department so we can see more patients. And um, I, I think if we're a little bit more mindful and, and collegial with our relationships, it all goes better. And it just makes me laugh. I mean, my wife's an incredible person for so many reasons, but I remember in training or, and uh, even early faculty, you know, I'd have a tough interaction at two or three in the morning. She'd go, well, that's your fault. She said, you're upset, they're upset, and the patient didn't get what they want. What did you expect to happen when you responded that way? And like most things, she was absolutely right. And you learn to be much better in the middle of the night. Everybody goes home happier. You, you take care of the patient, you take care of your night and you can go back to sleep because, you know, it's a, it's a collegial interaction rather than getting yourself worked up. Uh, absolutely. But you know, you do, uh, I don't think you should beat up young Phil. Um, he was doing his best. Um, you were literally taught that by your senior residents. You, yeah. you probably saw some of barking and modeling and i'm sure not just residents yeah i'm sure that you saw bad behavior uh in the or and people throwing stuff and whatnot and i i think that you become a little older a little wiser how would i like uh you know you know you say your wife's an operating room nurse how would you like your wife to be treated in in the or and, and her friends and colleagues who are now your friends and colleagues and uh things soften up um it does sometimes take a while. Uh, I think my book will help people think about some of these issues more. And um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a goal. Yeah. And I want to get into one other thing that um, we haven't talked about. And I want to talk about physical interactions, the hitting, punching, biting, tough patient. And the ER takes its unfair share of this. Um, we see it in, in the operating room and, and elsewhere too. Um, I, I would say, fortunately, I have not experienced firsthand physical abuse by a patient, but I've actually had to go to court because I had uh, someone threatened to murder me, um, which, you know, is uh, stressful. We'll put it that way. And, you know, where a unit had to get locked down. And especially at that time I was in Baltimore and you can, you know, imagine the scene sometimes in Baltimore when, when those threats happen, we take them very, very, very seriously. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on the physical interactions that can go poorly and and then we, then we'll wrap up. I, I think this is, um, a challenge, uh, where are the emergency physicians and nurses techs are right on the front line. Um, people, some people are at their worst. Some people are under, uh, the influence of various substances. Um, I can remember in our uh, emergency department in one of the small hospitals in Northeast Philadelphia, when somebody would just come in strung out and we just sedated them, intubated them before we would even re reverse their, their opioids. Um, because we knew that they would just take a slug at someone and charge out. Um, and I don't even know if you can do that anymore. So it, we're there. Um, I read a paper recently that people who are identified in the chart as prior behavioral or violent issues get seen, get seen less, they have less time spent with them and they're, they are not seen as quickly. So, you know, even labeling patients in that way to try and protect emergency staff um, can be a problem. I think that we have to think of our own safety first. We have to uh, kind of maintain like a literal boundary um, you know, not get too close to a patient because, you know, so they don't reach out and slug us. But, you know, unfortunately, the nurses are right up close and the, the problem of violence against nurses is terrible. And um, so I think awareness uh, and um, protecting ourselves, um, making use of our 
security detail. Um, hopefully there is one present, certainly in some of the more urban um, departments there is. Um, I watched uh, one of my colleagues uh, sat in a little room where we were evaluating psychiatric patients and this uh, patient kicked her in the jaw. And after that, um, I did my um, psych evals from the hallway. Um, you know, I wasn't about to let that happen to me. <laughs> I was like, like, you got anything bothering you? No, okay, good. Um, <laughs> so we, we have to uh, be aware, protect ourselves. Um, unfortunately, this is the expression. This, uh, I like to think of it, I tell the res would tell the residents, this is a symptom of their disease. Uh, whatever their disease is, their psychiatric disease, uh, their desperation, their withdrawal, whatever it is, th this is a symptom. Um, you know, we're not angry at someone because they have a high blood sugar. You know, we, we're, of course, we're um, upset or angry if someone actually um, is violent against us or hits us, but it, it helps to look at it in that way. Yeah, I think that is um extremely important and extremely valuable. And I think one of the things you you brought up is incredibly important is we need to protect ourselves first and the people around us. Um, you know, take care of your people, take care of yourself, and you can better deliver care to patients. So be be vigilant for those things and don't put yourself in a bad situation. And try and be as forgiving as you can when someone acts out, recognizing that most people aren't jerks at their core. They're going through something tough, whether it's illness, substance related, whatever it may be. They're they're going through a challenge. And uh, it's one of the beauties of, of medicine is, as you've said throughout this, it's our goal not to judge. And whether they're the president, the victim of a crime, the perpetrator of a crime, whoever it may be, we don't judge them. We take care of their issues and help them help them move on. So Joan, this has been a really fun hour. I love talking about this stuff and I hope you and I get to continue to, to talk about these things. And I hope this brings a lot of interactions for you because I think you've got a ton of knowledge here and a ton of experience and really insightful thoughts about this that I, I know can help a ton of people. But I just want to summarize some of the amazing things you've said over the last hour. And we've been talking about tough interactions and I think it's important to remember that a small percentage of bad interactions can really influence the outlook of our day and our week and the way we feel about our career and what we do. So we need to be thoughtful about these things. I love how you frame them as difficult interactions with people, not difficult patients. And that is the first step in kind of passing on a little bit of grace or compassion as we work through these challenging situations, because it's important to remember that negative feelings lead to bad behaviors on our part and can lead to this vicious cycle where we deliver worse patient care and we potentially make our situation and our lives more uncomfortable. I think part of the awareness that you brought up was recognizing that we set incredibly high standards for our patient. We want the mature, responsible, compliant, respectful patient that gets to the point and basically somebody who's gone to four years of medical school and at least some residency training. So they're a lot easier to talk to, but very few patients have the experience we do. They don't understand what they're going through and they don't understand a lot of what we're saying at them. So we have to take take everything down a notch and recognize that not every patient is going to be perfect. Your cycle of think, feel, act is incredibly important. And once again, to tie it to mindfulness, it's about intentionally bringing compassion to interactions, acting in a non-judgmental way so we can be more present and deliver the best medical care and get the best experience for that patient and for us in almost every interaction. So Joan, it's been an incredible hour. I want to once again, plug, uh, plug you and your book. You can find uh, Joan at Dr. Joan Nidorf, uh, N-A-I-D-O-R-F, sorry, Nadorf, N-A-I-D-O-R-F. And you can find the book, Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients on Amazon. Thank you for your time. I'll put all of that stuff in the notes so people don't have to keep listening to this and they can find it quickly, but look forward to interacting with you a lot more in the future, Joan. Thank you so much. I can get one last um, quip and, and you know, what, what I think is it's not just about getting better results, although we do get better results. If we have better thoughts about our patients, we're more compassionate, we're more curious, but it feels terrible when we have these negative thoughts and feel defeated and cynical and nothing I ever do will matter. That feels terrible. We have extremely high percentage 
of uh, ladies and gentlemen in our field who feel like leaving because they feel so terrible about it. And th this is just one small aspect. We still have to deal with our staffing and our EMRs and all that other stuff. But this is an important part of, of how we deal with some of these patients that become difficult interaction issues. And if we can just do better at this, I think this would go a long way to make people feel better about staying in clinical medicine. And we need people there. We're, you know, at a terrible shortage of, uh, of nurses and techs and paramedics and physicians and surgeons. It just um, would help to keep everybody who still wants to do it, who still really loves it, to remember why. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, you know, 80% of the, the burnout and the tough stuff we deal with is, is systematic, but this is right in that realm of 20% that we can work on. We can make our days better. We can make our lives better. And I know people are really going to benefit from this conversation, Joan. So thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for having me.